I'm Julia Gerlach, Executive Editor of No-Till Farmer. Welcome to the latest episode of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. This program featuring stories about the past, present, and future of no-till farming is sponsored by Martin Industries. I encourage you to subscribe to this series, which is available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about upcoming episodes as soon as they're released. I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Martin Industries, for supporting our No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. Since 1991, Martin Industries has designed, manufactured, and sold leading agriculture equipment around the world. Known for Martin-Till planter attachments, the company has expanded to include a five-step planting system, closing wheel systems, twisted drag chains, fertilizer openers, and more in their lineup. Their durable and reliable planter attachments are making it possible for more and more farmers to plant into higher levels of residue. For more information about Martin Industries, visit them at www.martintill.com. That's M-A-R-T-I-N-T-I-L-L.com. Jackson, Wisconsin no-tiller Ross Bishop has many of the same obstacles to deal with as other farmers, like challenging soils, climbing land prices, and unpredictable weather. But as a no-tiller located in a suburban area, he also juggles city drivers, increased scrutiny from neighbors, and busloads of school kids learning about agriculture. And he does it all with a smile. In this episode of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast, Frank Lesseter talks with Bishop about how he got turned on to no-till back in the 1990s and how that impacts his operation today. Join us as they discuss using cover crops and planting green, no-tilling in 20-inch rows, why he's experimenting with growing Kernza, the benefits of using sulfur and dry boron, and much more. Ross, tell me where you're located. You're kind of a suburban farmer, aren't you? Well, we're in the, the town of Jackson. We are about a half an hour from Milwaukee. Now, you're not only just north of Milwaukee, but you're just west of Lake Michigan, aren't you? Yeah, I think it's about 16 or 18 miles away from Lake Michigan. Okay, so this this where you're located and the lake being nearby gives you some nasty soils, doesn't it? We have a little of everything. I've got the clay <laughs> soils that Lake Michigan shares. I also have a lot of bedrock that sticks out of the ground and looks just like a table or you poured concrete, mm-hmm. and that really hurts you when it's dry out. In the old days, when you tried to plow all those stones, what happened? They come to the surface or what? Sometimes the plow doesn't even go in the ground. It just uh, breaks apart because the bedrock never, it was more stubborn. A lot of times you just picked up the plow and you didn't plow there because the the stone was right to the surface. Wow. Wow. So did you grow up in this area on a family farm or what? No, I did not. I actually moved into the Jackson area in 1982 from a family farm. I grew up in North Prairie, and that was mostly gravel. Mm-hmm. And so what a difference between North, uh, I should say, McWanago and North Prairie versus Jackson. Sure. Uh, so how did you end up at Jackson? I think you took a job, a manufacturing job for a while, didn't you? You got that right, Frank. You got a good memory. I went to short course in 79 into 80 and came home from short course. I told my brothers that we were going to lose the farm if we keep farming the way we are. Mm -hmm. Well, in 81, my oldest brother said, well, you need to go get a job, which I ended up in Milwaukee at a foundry. And I was maintenance person there for about six weeks. And this gentleman had a farm out in Jackson. He always had a dream to farm. And he and I became good friends and worked together for 28 years. Wow. So when did you get interested in no-till? My brother tried it in 78 and 79. He tried to no-till corn. And what a disaster. It didn't work. And it, it was dry those summers. And so then later on, working for Floyd, and I want to say somewhere in like 87, just before the drought of 88, I tried a small field and I didn't have the knowledge, I didn't have the right equipment, and that also failed. The corn didn't get deep enough. So I believe 
it was 94 or 95. I heard about the no-till conference in Indianapolis, and I ended up coming down there. And that's mm-hmm. when I started to learn all about it. So how many acres are you farming now? You you um, you worked for this gentleman for a long time, but then you kind of went out on your own, right? So the 09, 2009, in August, he says, I'm turning 80, to, 80 years old. I'm going to sell the farm. And if you want to keep farming, you're going to have to buy it from me. So 2010, we bought the farm. Marcy, my wife, and I, we bought the farm. And he let me use the equipment for free for five years. And we were able to be very blessed by having the ability to buy all the three farms that he had, 176 acres, buy all the equipment. And we still do cattle. We have 100 head of cattle still. Hmm. Uh, when I was working for him, we would go out west and buy four semi-loads. So we would bring home about 400 head of cattle every year. And that's what we sure. did for 28 years. When you say cattle, you're talking beef cattle feeding out steers, right? Yep, the good cattle, you betcha, Angus or Crosses. Right, so have you got any cows or do you buy yearlings or what? We would buy calves weighing about 500 pounds, and that's why we were able to get about 100 head on each semi. And we'd be empty by September. We'd go out in October for two weeks and go buy more cattle every year. So how many acres are you farming today? We're at about 700. Um... It, give or take, every year you lose some, you gain some. Sure. And what crops you're growing? So mostly corn and beans, uh, wheat. This year I've got a lot of wheat in the ground. And then I've started to grow uh, the winter rye, and I've got some kernza in the ground this year too. What are those? So the winter rye is used for the planting green and then the, the kernza is something new that's a sweet hay. And I've got a bunch of horse people around me. And it's supposed to be very good for your root growth because kernza basically is a prairie grass crossed with wheat. Mm-hmm. And so Minnesota created this plant. And I'm trying to see if I can get it established and see if I get a market for it here. Sure. How many acres are you doing this year on that? I got seven acres. Mm-hmm. Good. Give me a try. So what were some of the early day experiences that you would like to help other people avoid? <laughs> uh, you definitely need to go somewhere or read and educate yourself on the things that are need to be done with no-till. Because it isn't just something where you just take your regular planter and put it in the ground and that's the first thing. You got to know what you're doing and you need to find someone that has done it to be your mentor. And that'll help get through those tough two, three years. And with cover crops now, I think three years and you're on uh, a good uh, basis for no-till. The ground changes that much quicker with cover crops. Yeah. So as a mentor, did you have another farmer or a crop consultant or what? I had you, Frank. Uh oh! <laughs> I told you over the years. Now. Well, I told you over the years. If it wasn't for no-till, I wouldn't be here. And and if it wasn't for the no-till conference, I wouldn't have the knowledge that I have. Well, that's great. Glad to hear it. So you, uh, I, each winter, you seem to run a planter clinic for uh, both veteran no-tillers and guys just getting into it. Can you describe how this works? What you've uh, been able to do with that and accomplish? Through the Cedar Creek Farmers, that is a watershed here. We're one of those uh, farmer-led groups where we help teach and promote the no-till confirmation land Mm -hmm. conservation practices. And so we put, with that help of the group, we're able to put together every other year we use um, our funds to teach the, the local farmers here about these things. We've had good success of 40, 50 people show up, and I'm finding a lot of people are are doing it. it it's very successful. Mm-hmm. So, what do you um, what row widths are you in for corn and beans? So, for um, since 1997 is when I bought a John Deere uh, 1780 no-till dra- uh, planter. 20-inch rows, 
And that's the year I went completely to no-till, completely 100%, and went into 20-inch rows. So it was quite a learning curve that year. And so I plant all the beans in 20-inch rows. Unless we have these last years were very wet, the drill's going, and I've got two planters I can plant with. And there's a lot of times where all three were going in one day. So most of it's in 20-inch rows, and we find that to work really well for beans. And I really like it for corn because it shades the ground. Hmm. And then your weed control is much easier to control. Now, years ago, I, I looked up a couple articles that we did on you, so I I didn't remember everything. But years ago, you built your own <laughs> you built your own twenty inch corn head, didn't you? I did, and you had John come out with another person, and you videoed me and put me on YouTube, yeah. and that has stimulated. Uh, I couldn't believe. I'm I'm guessing there's 20 people over the country, over the country that have called me that seen that video that you did of me mm-hmm. about the corn head, how to make one. Yeah. And so, and it still works great. I have very, I mean, it still runs great. Well, tell us a little bit about building this. You took some old IH parts, didn't you, and got started with that? Yep. Um, so the 800 series, corn head had a smaller gearbox so you could actually put them together and go to 20 inch rows to buy one it was unbelievable the price they wanted so i bought used four rows in the area they didn't want them anymore they didn't have a need for them so i gave them three four hundred dollars for the heads took them all apart put the gearboxes in did the welding of the head. You can see all this on the YouTube video and took and bought the snoots for it. And now I have a a head that I can do 20 inch rows. And uh, if I say cost efficient or whatever, it's not that expensive. Well, it gave you something to do all winter or all spring building this (laughs) and kept you out of your wife's hair. It it was a long period. I bet you it took me uh, a month and a half to do it all. Yeah. Now, you also looked, when you made this switch, you also looked at 15-inch roads. So why did you decide on the 20s? I actually went down to Marion Colmer probably two falls in a row. I went to his classes in the, in the spring, sure. and then in the fall went and saw what he had to harvest. And he was talking at the time. He goes, yeah, you got to go with these really narrow tires. And he was talking about the compaction and the cost. And I thought, well, let's kind of shoot down the middle. Let's go 20-inch rows. And yeah. that's kind of where I, I ended up. Well, I think that happened to a lot of people. I think there's many more people in 20-inch rows today than in 15s. Um, so let's talk about your cover crop program, what you got, what you're doing so we started in 2012. I had uh, radishes and annual ryegrass. And you know, that year was a very mild winter and it was a dry one in the summer of 12. I planted beans and corn into some winter rye that had grown to be at least over my knee. And I like was wondering, am I doing the right thing here? Letting <laughs> it grow, planting green. That was my best corn and best beans in 2012 because it shaded the ground. Mm-hmm. What so were that you, was the start of it. Yeah. What were you using as a mix then, and what are you using today? So that was a just a, a daikon radish and the annual ryegrass. Okay. Now we're using uh, kale. We're using sunflowers because I'll tell you, it makes the neighborhood very pleased when they see the flowers in the fall. Um. I've, I've used a lot of winter rye now, the uh, radishes, kale. Oh, God, I, I probably got a mix of about five or six different things that we put in there, the uh-huh. crimson clover. We use peas. I like to use oats and barley and all these things I put together and mix it and then put that in with the drill. I've got a 1560 John Deere no-till drill that we plant this all. So do you mix this mix yourself? Yes. What do you mix it in? I started with a cement mixer, uh-huh. and that was very time-consuming. Then I started using my grinder that I grind the feed. I don't sure. put it through the hammer mill, but I put it in there, I mix it up, and away we go. It works pretty yeah. good. So how do you set the seed plates? you set it for the largest seed, the smallest seed, or what? So we got a scale on the drill, 
And you're right. You go with the largest, you start there, and then we just kind of dial it in from there. Uh-huh. And with the scale, I got to say, when you got a scale, it makes it a lot easier to set your drill. Yeah. How many pounds an acre would you be seeding? Last year, we were probably in that 48 pounds because mm-hmm. we had 10 pounds of oats, 10 pounds of barley, and I went 20 pounds of of the um, winter rye. And then you have your kale and all these little seeds. I only went sure. a pound of the acre of those because that's small seed. Yeah. Um, now, you you got wheat in your rotation. Does that help you co- um plant seed cover crops earlier? Is that the reason you do that? Or is it a real cash crop for you or what? So everything I just talked about, the mix that I have, that is going after the wheat is harvested. And we're starting to uh, harvest wheat here come Friday or Saturday when the weather turns on us better. So it'll be the middle of July. Yeah. So it's early this year. Normally it's the last week in July, but we're a week or so ahead. Mm-hmm. And so we'll get the straw off and we'll plant right into the, right behind the the, the combine, if I could say it that way, yeah. so that things can really grow and get established. And I might put a little bit of nitrogen on when I spray the weed control, mm-hmm. but like between 20 and 30 units of end down when I sure. spray and if I have manure, then I'll use manure. But, uh, I mean, um, a little nitrogen really makes those cover crops really come alive. Right. So do you, are you using cover crops on your corn and soybean ground? Yes. Um, so when we get done with – actually, when I'm combining soybeans, we've got the winter rye and the drills right next to me. I've got some video with the Cedar Creek farmers where we're in the same field – Combining beans and planting the cereal rye. And I usually plant between 90 and 100 pounds the acre because I want a good establishment next year of going to plant into that green. Two years ago, we started planting um, the cereal rye after we've combined the corn. And we're finding huge benefits there because it breaks up the corn stalks. The drill does a nice job of doing that. And then we've got something growing next spring when we plant into that. So are you planting everything green now? Pretty much, yes. Now, the spring of 2021, there were some problems with frost with no-till ground and cover crops. Why don't you elaborate on what happened to you? Oh, I um, I want to say it was, what, Memorial Weekend? We had that yeah. two days, Saturday and Sunday, and I probably lost in corn 20 acres where it was six to eight inches tall tall, and by Sunday night it was flat on the ground brown mm-hmm. and it came back the corn came back but now I've got two heights I've got corn that's head high and I've got some that's hip high just as, as of the weekend yeah um, the beans uh, really took we were planting beans already by the 8th of April we really started by the 18th of April and those beans were out of the ground, and I probably lost 10 acres of beans that I had to replant. Yeah. Well, you, I mean, you had lots of damage, but some people had 300 and 400 acres worth of damage. Um, how's it going to yield where these where they came back? I mean, well, there's places where there's no beans, and mm-hmm. so I tried to fill in a little bit there. But I'm seeing the beans are stunted for probably two reasons. One, the frost didn't help them. And we are really dry here. We've got sure. uh, two tenths the other night. Like yesterday, we got two tenths. But it it's bushing. They're they're very short. They're not even canopying the row yet. They're that short. And so lots of flowers. But uh, I guess we'll see what we get for rain as we go into August. And um, the beans, um, I know, can do a lot that month and the corn is going to be short. I've got corn. that's just about ready to tassel and it's just head high. Mm-hmm. What should it normally be? Um, last year it was very tall and I bet you had corn that was in that 10 to 11 feet tall. Yeah. So with this frost program uh, and what happened this year, are you going to do anything different next spring? <laughs> there doesn't seem to oh. be any easy answer to this. Oh my gosh. I mean, if you worked your ground this year, you, you had a perfect stand. If you had cover crop green and you planted into it, 
and it was really thick, it really got hurt the worst. The ground didn't get warmed up and the frost really nipped us. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. We're going to kind of, I think what we're going to do is we're not going to have the, the, the kale. I had kale that was flowering. It was, it was to my stomach. The kale was that tall that I yeah. planted into and people were saying, you got mustard. And I said, no, that's kale. And I had turnips. That's the other thing. I had turnips all over the place that never died. Yeah. <laughs> um, I've got some pictures of turnips that were almost 30 inches tall. I could send you that just were amazing. So we were planning that, and that's what really hurt us, I believe. Mm-hmm. Do you think it was worse where there was no-till and cover crops together or no-till alone? I have one field that goes all the way into the marsh, and that had cereal rye in it, but it was only like ankle high. It was like five, six, sure. seven inches tall. Mm-hmm. And believe it or not, Frank, that corn got nipped, but it didn't get killed. As the as you come out of the fro- out of the field into the higher ground, that's where the frost killed the corn. Mm-hmm. And as you got closer to the buildings where it's really higher, it didn't it nipped it, but it didn't kill it. So is there the ha- it was like halfway through the field is where it really killed it. It was weird. Yeah. And so the ground that didn't have the cover crop seemed to tolerate the frost more. Yeah. Are we going to see some skeptics that say I'm moving away from cover crops or no-till? I'm sure you've got those people that just don't have the faith in it because that's sure. one thing about no-till. You've got to have faith in this practice and you're going to make it work. Yeah, we got dinged. But um, let's see what happens when we get harvesting. Maybe yeah. it'll it'll still do something. I, last year, Frank, I saw corn that was running 280 to 300, 300 bushel the acre. It was just amazing how this corn can produce on no-till ground. So going back to uh, planting, and you got these bedrock soils, and you got stone near the surface. You have problem getting the no-till drill into the ground, or, or no-till planter into the ground, or not? <laughs> Either or, you are correct. Either or, it does not go in the ground. So what I learned to do, if you got bedrock that's that thin or that close to the surface, I'll go take dirt from the fence line. And I'll put, I'll spread it across those areas so that at least you've got an inch or two of soil that the the planter can at least get something in. But if you go dry, you know exactly where that corn or beans are because that ground does not support the plants. Right. You still running coulters? I used to have front coulters on the John Deere planter. I took them off. Um, the, The red planter, the international I have, the very first three years I had, I had them on there and I took them off because I didn't need it. I still run a trash ripper up front and I move that residue out of the way. And then we have the Martin row cleaner up front and we have the Martin um, closing wheels, the spader to sure. close and break it apart. And we've had really good success. I've tried probably four or five different closing wheels. Mm-hmm. And this is the one that I've, I've kind of, taken and enjoyed working with. What uh, kind of corn yields would you get and what kind of fertilizers it take to get there? Um, so in the last three or four years, we started really hitting uh, the fertility because the prices were lower. Mm-hmm. So when it comes to soybeans, I'll put 300 to 400 pounds of potash. I put 50 to 60 units of, of uh, sulfur with that. Mm-hmm. And I noticed that the soybeans really like the sulfur. And when we have that high of potash, we have less um, weed, or not weed, but uh, the aphids are sure. not as, as bad. The plant is able to tolerate them. Mm-hmm. And of course, that all helps the corn. But the biggest thing I found from the corn is we need ammonium sulfate. And this is something I learned at the conference is that um, you call your co-op and they'll say, all you need is 25 units of sulfur. That's all you need for the whole year. Yeah. Well, you've had some guys that are 70 years old there that have talked, uh, Kinsey. He said that we need at least 70 units for corn. You need 50 plus for soybeans. And I took that home and I saw the benefit in both. 
And so I put all my, um, I put ammonium sulfate, let me say it that this way, thio, ammonium thiol sulfate liquid off the back of the planter, just drill it off the back when I plant, and I'm putting about 13 to 14 gallons at that time. And then when we come back to side dress, I put drop nozzles on the sprayer, and I usually wait until the corn's about hip high, and I drive through with the sprayer and drop nozzle my 28. Um, I'm using four pounds of boron, dried boron, uh-huh. and we're seeing that's making the ears fill out right to the tip. The kernels are all the way to the tip, and so the boron is doing its job there. And then we put another five to ten gallons of ammonium sulfate with that, and the corn seems to really like all that sulfur. Yeah. I was just reading something yesterday that people were saying that boron's kind of an unforgiving element that people don't realize how important it is. Yep. So we, I started about five, six years ago with boron, and I was buying the liquid, and I was only going maybe a pound of the acre. And it was expensive. That was like $19 a gallon. Mm-hmm. And then I want to say it was like three years ago, someone says, well, did you ever try to dry? It's, it's half the price. Yeah. So I started to experiment with the dry and we started going from a pound to three pounds to four pounds. And that's when we started really seeing the, the ears fill right to the tip. Yeah. So what are you using for weed control? We've got this weed called water hemp that's coming at us. And yeah. So when it came to the corn, I always used the Lumax, but I would buy the generic chemicals and mix it myself. Mm -hmm. But that would be the program I had. I had beautiful, clean uh, corn fields, but the last two years, the water hemp is starting to break through that Calisco. And so we're going to have to try something different next year. And then the soybeans, about five years ago, the mare's tail showed up. Mm -hmm. And so I... Should have probably went with some residual, but I went to the Enlist Beans, and last year they were clean as a whistle. And this year they're clean, but the water hemp is starting to come through. And yeah. we've got to um, really hit the water hemp hard with the Enlist uh, chemistry. Mm-hmm. So in your area, um, you know, it used to be, I grew up in Michigan, and, and I was north of Detroit about 40 miles and there was another, Pontiac was another city of 100,000 people about 10 miles away. So even when I was growing up in the 40s and 50s, we had lots of suburban neighbors. In fact, we were probably the only farm left in a square mile. But you've, you've got a lot of suburbanites living in your area. How do you deal with them? I mean, are they concerned about you spraying and other things or not? I would say you're correct that they are watching us. And when we start putting signs out, they're like, well, what are you spraying? You never put signs out before. Uh-huh. <laughs> and so um, I actually lost some acres last year because the house in the middle of eight acres, it was an eight acre piece and I farmed all around it. And he's got three young kids, one, uh-huh. one year old, and I think a three year old and a five year old. And he told me, he says, I don't want you to spray anymore, and I want you to be organic. And I said, well, I'm not organic. And I said, I could put it in hay. And he says, well, then just leave it. Well, right now, that eight acres is full of mare's tail. It is just (laughs) a jungle. Yeah. But that's, you're right. People are concerned about what we're doing. But Uh I would say the worst part is driving down the road. It isn't so much the spraying. It's the... uh, People come out of Milwaukee, they move out here, and they don't know what a tractor or combine is. Right. Well, I was in the Central Valley of California a number of years ago, and there were people commuting to San Francisco, either driving or catching a train of 30, 40 miles. And these farmers out there said, we have to move equipment at 3 a.m. in the morning because that's the only time the roads aren't jammed. I love hauling equipment on Sunday afternoon when there's a Packer game. Hey, there you go. (laughs) You're the only one not watching the Packer game. I'm listening on the radio. We'll come back to Frank and Ross Bishop in a moment, but I want to take time once again to thank our sponsor, Martin Industries, for supporting our No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. 
Since 1991, Martin Industries has designed, manufactured, and sold leading agriculture equipment around the world. Known for Martin tilled planter attachments, the company has expanded to include a five-step planting system, closing wheel systems, twisted drag chains, fertilizer openers, and more in their lineup. Their durable and reliable planter attachments are making it possible for more and more farmers to plant into higher levels of residue. For more information about Martin Industries, visit them at www.martintill.com. That's M-A-R-T-I-N-T-I-L-L.com. Before we get back to the conversation, here's Frank Lesseter with a little-known no-till farmer fact. In this podcast, Ross Bishop talks about narrowing down his corn rows with no-till to 20-inch rows, and I think he was in 30-inch rows before that. And he mentioned that he had gone to the Marion Commerce seminars on which they talk about narrow row corn. So I thought I would put in today some information from uh, Marion's trials down at Alpha, Illinois. And he did a study on five-year corn row spacing study at a 32,000 plant per acre population. And he compared 30-inch rows and 15-inch rows over five years. The average yield for the 30-inch rows was 196 bushels per acre, while the 15-inch rows resulted in a yield of 204 bushels per acre. And at Marion's farm, with five years and 20 replications, he found that the narrow rows were $40 per acre more profitable in the 30-inch rows when corn was valued at $5 per bushel. Now let's get back to Frank Lesseter and Ross Bishop. So how's no-till changed the quality of these lousy soils you have on some areas? The soil we have now is dark. It crumbles like cottage cheese. You can take, sometimes when the moisture of the soil is just right, you can take your finger and put it through it. Um, It's not like butter, but you can actually take your finger and stick through it because it's so mellow. Mm -hmm. Uh, I have one farm that's, next to the village of Jackson that was very red. It was clay. You worked it, it turned into golf balls. And all these years of no-till, 25 years this year, it has actually gotten dark. The ground is actually turning darker. Hmm. And it does produce uh, corn now. If I got 100 bushel off that farm, it's 40-some acres. If I got 100 bushel of corn off it, that's it. Last year, it was hitting over 200. Wow, that's great. Right. The no-till, the cover crops, you got to have cover crops. That's what really started to change, the, if I say, the biology and the color of the soil. Yeah. So let's talk about the pipeline situation. A number of years ago, you had a pipeline break, I think, in your area. You, you know the details. Why don't you tell us what happened and still going on today? Okay. So uh, West Shore Pipeline has a 10-inch pipe that goes from um, the northern part of Milwaukee, Granville, all the way up to Green Bay, and they were pumping gasoline, diesel fuel, and kerosene all the way up to Green Bay for the all the vehicles and the airplanes. Sure. And on July 17th, 2012, that pipeline at about 11 o'clock cracked open a 10, 11 foot crack in it. And it spewed out about 54,000 gallons of gasoline to the east of the pipe. Uh-huh. And that day it was 40 mile an hour winds. Wow. They, they knew about where it had broken. They walked the, they were right over the pipe. They walked the pipe because the ground was so dry that summer. Um, it, it basically blew out the side of the dirt, like a little garden. I should say it was like fire hoses, yeah. four or five. And they didn't see the ground break up like it normally does. They walked right over it. They couldn't smell the gas and they turned around, came back and that's when they found it. Uh-huh. And they started to tear it apart and fix it. Meanwhile, they shut down about a three mile radius around that break and everybody had to go to a hotel because they didn't want anybody to use the water. And that was a Tuesday. Uh-huh. 
Uh-huh. I have a I have a, a house that I lived in. I just happened to move out of that house on January of 2012 into the farmhouse, and that well went bad on Thursday afternoon. And you could light the water. That's wow. how much gas. And so they shut us down. Um, with and they were going to shut my farm down now. We never got gas in our well here at the farm, but they felt the DNR felt that I was a high user and I was going to pull the plume towards the farm. So they were going to close my well down, but they didn't yeah. because pipeline said, "No, you can't do that to Ross. Yeah. We're going to sue you." <laughs> <laughs> but there was a well in the village. It used to be the Libby's well where the cannery was mm-hmm. and it showed up with gas. They had gas in that well. And so they don't use that well anymore and they have to. Mm-hmm. So how far were you from the break? The The house I was living in was less than a thousand feet away. Mm-hmm. The farm and that's to the, that would be to the Southwest. Okay. The farm is about a little more than a quarter mile away to the Northeast. Mm-hmm. the pipe was on the other side of the hill. Okay. And this, I learned about water in the water um, on top of the surface, ran away to the, to the West. That's how your aquifers are too in the ground. Sure. So all the gas was going towards the village. It was all going West. And that's what saved me here mm-hmm. being East of the pipe bus. Yeah. Now, you people had to bring in water for a long time, didn't you? Yep. They were bringing semi-loads for the cattle, and the cattle didn't drink really well on that. They were getting water out of Brookfield is where sure. they were going to get it. Cattle probably didn't like the chlorination. They did not. And believe it or not, the, the pipeline gave me a little extra money because they didn't grow as well. Yeah. Huh. So um, what's going on today? Is this solved or still going on or what? So what happened through the, let's see, 2012, 13, the end of 13, they finally figured out that the village was going to supply us water. Mm-hmm. Um, but the pipeline, West Shore Pipeline, had to put the pipe in. That was all free. That would cost over $8 million for them to put the wow. pipe in. Sure. To, I believe it was 154 residents that had to get water from the village. Mm-hmm. And then um, now people of like myself at the farm here, I don't have village water. I, I, I chose to keep my well and thank God I had never had an issue with gasoline in my farm. But the other farm that we bought, that, that had gas in it for about two weeks. Mm-hmm. And so we're on city water there and it cost me about $140 a quarter for water for about 50 head of cattle over there. Yeah. So it's not cheap. It's they, the village. I said, well, water's cheap. And I'm like, yeah, not with you. All right. So but, the problem is pretty well solved now. Yeah. The, the, the lawsuit is, is done and everybody got their money and everybody's got water and pretty much people are starting to forget about it. Land mm-hmm. is being sold in the area and, the realtors don't even tell the, the new people that are buying that there was a gas bill here. And so it's, it's pretty black back to normal, but a lot of questions is like, well, why are you on city water? You're out in the country. Yeah. <laughs> the suburban area, what's farmland worth there? Um, so I can tell you this back in 2015, you could buy farmland for about 10 grand. Mm-hmm. And now that things are getting really, let's say, hot, people are buying. Um, I'm hearing people selling farmland for around 15 plus around yeah, here. Right. And then if it's for development, people are asking 20 to 30,000 an acre. Yeah, right. So we've been talking about 40 minutes. I miss anything we ought to be talking about? Let's go back to getting ready for planting no-till. Make sure that your equipment is is definitely got the uh, the ability to get the seed in the ground, that is very important. This year, because it was so dry at the beginning of planting, I had the airbags is what's on the corn planter. I had them at the full pressure to get it in the ground. 
And also with the beans, we were at 400 pounds with the John Deere planter to get the, the planter to get into that dry soil. Once it rained, we could pull that weight back. So you need to get out and make sure you're getting the seed in the ground. And we're planting corn at two to two and a half inches. Hmm. And we're finding that works really well with no-till. Right. Now, soybeans, where you're located, correct me if I'm wrong, but most soybeans would go in in really late April or early May or up to 10th of May. But you seeded some on April 8th, you said. Yep. Now, my dad said, you don't plant beans until the 1st of June. That's the way it was in the 70s. Mm-hmm. And all you got to do is put a little dust over them. They'll they'll grow. Yeah. Um, we've done this now for probably eight years. We'll start planting the first at, as early as possible. We've actually started on the first of April, and we'll get these beans in the ground two inches, and they'll lay there for weeks, two three weeks. And I use treated when it's that early, and those beans come out. And they usually do very well. We'll see 70 to 80 bushel beans when they're early, that early. Mm-hmm. Wow. Do you think it pays to uh, plant beans before you plant corn? I would say yes, because we had almost all our beans in before I started planting corn on the 8th of May. Mm-hmm. And I would say when you plant your beans population-wise, this has been an issue two years in a row now, Um I used to always plant at 130, and that always worked, Two, 127 to 130. And last year I tried 115 to 117, and we had some issues. There were some uh, places where the beans just didn't come up. Yeah. And so this year we were at 112, and I had some more issues where they it was more than just where the frost was. Hmm. They were a little on the thin side. So we're going to go back up to 125 to 130 again to have that insurance. Uh, you planting GMO or non-GMO crops? They are GMO. The hmm. beans are enlist beans, so you can use uh, the Roundup. You can use uh, the enlist and you can use Liberty Link. So I have the ability to use a lot of stuff to get those weeds killed. Do you try to uh, rotate Liberty Link with Roundup or not? I have never used Liberty yet. So next okay. year will probably be my first. Okay, good. And well, next year will be my first year. I'll probably put residual with my soybeans. Um, I, I'm hearing that that is the easiest way to handle the water hemp. Yeah. So it's going to be expensive. They're telling me up to 40 to $60 I'll have a cost in chemicals. Yeah. So if glyphosate or Roundup got banned, what would happen to no-till? Oh, boy. <laughs> would that take a huge tool out of our toolbox? Exactly, right. Um, I don't know. What's the name of that one that um, – Sagenta used to sell. Yeah, well, it used to be Paraquat. Yes, that's it. Right. Paraquat. And that's supposed to kill everything, but it doesn't kill the root. Well, Paraquat, that's how no-till got started. But you're right, it didn't go to the roots. And that when Roundup came up, that's why no-till really mushroomed, because it was getting to the roots, which Paraquat didn't do in those days. Yeah. Otherwise, we'll have to go back to crop oil and, and uh, the old-fashioned stuff. With you living in the suburb areas, I know that you've done well by having elementary school kids come out to the farm. Can you tell us about that? So this, what is it? it would have been, this year would have been 25 years, but um, I had two schools come out this year only that were allowed to come. But mm-hmm. for for that many years, we've had schools from the Washington County area 11 schools come to the farm in april and they would come to see the cattle the equipment how we feed the cattle we would have the feed all measured out we would show how many products come from the cattle themselves with medicine and all those things and i would show the corn soybeans and wheat in bushel baskets and say this is what i grow these, and I have a table next to those bushel baskets of all kinds of products that come from corn, that come from wheat, and that come from soybeans. And I go, you don't, um, you may not understand when you go to the grocery store, you might grab soy sauce, and that might come from my soybeans. 
So um, what you see here, what I do, we need each other, I tell them. And this is something where I feed you and you feed me because you're giving me a job. And so we have about 500 head of kid come almost every year. And we started something eight years ago where I go farmer in the classroom and I'm called Farmer Ross and we talk to the kids in their classroom and that has been huge because now we we start that relationship in sure. their safe zone. Mm-hmm. And when they come out to the farm, they they really suck it in. It's yeah. pretty cool to see. Right. Sounds they, like that's they, been an amazing program for you. And what's interesting is most farmers that would be interested in doing this would say, I'm too busy in April planning to do it, but <laughs> you take the time to do it. It takes us four days before they come. So I'll start on Sunday or Monday, start cleaning the farm. We actually pressure wash the driveway off. That's how, <laughs> if I say anal I am, I want to make this place look clean. Yeah. Um, I have this theory. If the farm looks nice, people don't smell the smell is bad right? because they say that's really a nice looking place. Right. Um, I mean, the cattle, the kids come on Thursday and Friday and we go from nine o'clock till three o'clock both days. And it gets pretty tiring because yeah. you've got 500 kids coming at you. Yeah. But it is a pleasure to see these uh, 10, 11 year old kids look at you and, and enjoy and then you get the letters i i should bring you some of the letters yeah that we get and they are just phenomenal they they they'll put a tear in your eye because it's pretty cool i gotta share that i have a land conservation person stephanie and you've yeah. met her sure sure she's awesome because she is so bubbly her personality is so uh warm and and she's able to talk to these kids and she talks about no-till and all the different things that land conservation um fits in and then we feed them a a beef stick and some milk and then i take then they come out by me and we walk out on no-till ground and i show them what no-till is all about so it's it's really fun to to be able to just, and I always tell them, I said, I wish you guys could be here all day because there's so much to teach you. But we get them for like maybe an hour and that's yeah, it. Right. So how do you market uh, the beef from your cattle? Well, we have, I think we're up to 70 customers. I can sell quarters, halves, and holes for you. Mm-hmm. Sure. And then what doesn't get sold, I take them down to Monroe to the sale barn. Well, one of the things that I talked you into earlier today is you're going to come over here and feed our group of about 35 people at Lesser Media with some of this good hamburger one of these days. And we appreciate you doing that. Well, I know we've talked about it for years and we just got to make a time and do it. And I'm bringing, I got some, it's not black Angus, I got red Angus this year, but it's good stuff. And we're going to pay for this. So uh, whatever cost you got into it, we're paying for it. Sounds good. Okay. But we'll we're, we're, we're probably not going to pay 100 bucks an hour for the chef. Well, let's put it this way. You're lucky it's not the Wagyu that I had two years ago. Oh, did you have some? I accidentally had a Wagyu calf. Yeah. It, it, was, it, was, it looked like a Hereford, white uh-huh. face, red, with horns. And I'm at the sale barn in Bloomington, Wisconsin, and nobody wanted it. Yeah. And I said, well, it's going cheap. So let's buy it. Yeah. So we, we raise it up. I go to take it to Lairs to be butchered. They call me up when they're cutting the steaks, <laughs> and they go, Ross, you can't sell this. There's something wrong with it. And I says, what do you mean? It's all white. The meat is all white. It's yeah. just there's something wrong with it. So I bring it home personally, mm-hmm. and I took a regular, another steer to replace it. Sure. And so this was in October when I, this all happened. I go to Thanksgiving. Marcy's family gets together for Thanksgiving. It's about 100 people that get together. Wow, right. Um, two, almost half the family is all educulture. So I'm talking to the one who drives truck across the country, and he's talking about this Wagyu, and he's going to have five cows this hmm. coming fall. And he's telling me about how the meat is so white. It's got a special fat. It's really good for you. So I go home. I Google Wagyu. And I found pictures of what they look like. 
it was perfectly the same steers I had. Yeah. The meat, the, the steaks are all white. The pictures of the steaks look the same. Yeah, and this is a breed that was out of Japan that we have a few animals in the U.S. now with it. So Yes. So I just had a party on Sunday. We had the brisket smoked. Mm-hmm. Frank, it was absolutely delicious. Wow, that's great. So, yeah, the, it, it, how would I say that? I mean, we were we were dealing with meat that's worth $100 a pound. Well, you can bring us some Red Angus hamburger. We won't demand the Wagyu. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> well, I appreciate you doing this, and we hope to see you at the NOTO conference in Louisville in January. So, Oh, you can count on it, Frank. Thanks for tuning in to the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators Podcast. You can find more podcasts about no-till topics and strategies at notillfarmer.com forward slash podcasts. Before we wrap up this episode, here's Frank Lesseter once more. With our no-till farmer survey showing that fewer people are using colders on their planters, it's a good time to think about how planting speed affects the impact of having colders. And sometimes the advertised seed trench widths from the manufacturers are just approximate and are relative to speed. Higher than average planting speeds will result in more disturbance. For example, a 16-inch, 13-wave colder may have an advertised seed trench width of one inch. But if the planter is running at eight to 10 miles per hour, it's likely the seed trench will be more than two inches wide. So it's kind of like if you were to vibrate your fingers in the water, The faster you wiggle your fingers, the further the waves move outside. Thanks to Frank Lesseter and Farmer Ross for today's conversation. And thanks to our sponsor, Martin Industries, for helping to make this No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at jgerlock at lessermedia.com or call me at 262-777-2404. And don't forget that Frank would love to answer your questions about no-till and the people and innovations that have made an impact on today's practices. So please email me your questions at listenermail at notillpharma.com. Once again, if you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or the Google Play Store to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. For Frank Lesseter and our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm Executive Editor Julia Gerlach. Thank you for listening.